ladies and gentlemen. This is Book Music. I am Tosh. And I'm Kimley. And today we will discuss the book, The Searing Light, The Sun, and Everything Else. Joy Division, The Oral History, edited by John Savage, which I think is a perfect name for a rock and roll writer. Absolutely, especially of the punk era. And I've been following John Savage since the punk era. He's written uh, a lot of sort of music history books about the punk era. And he also wrote a fascinating book about teenagers. Mm, which one is that? It's called Teenager or Teenage. Oh, really? Yeah, it's a great book. It's sort of a, um, it's a history of the teenager and how teenagers become economic force after World right, War II. Right, right. Because oh, there, no, there was no teenagers before right. World War II. Right. You're just sort of a child. Childhood, yeah. Childhood has been extended in the 20th century. Yeah. So it's, he, oh, that he, sounds interesting. He's a very interesting writer, a good writer. And he's also very much part of the Joy Division environment menu yeah i believe he's from manchester as well it sounded like it from the book i mean he seemed to have been aware of them at the very earliest stages and it seems everybody's connected to manchester yeah so if in theory i imagine manchester which i've never been to is probably just only one block long (laughs) one record store in that block one nightclub (laughs) and the factory and Factory Records. Hacienda Club. And every musician from the 60s and 70s all live on this one block, which is Manchester. Man, that sounds pretty rocking to me. I think it's time to move there. Well, uh, transportation is cheap. There you go. Yeah. <laughs> Foot power. Foot power. But, um, but this, is, I think, is an excellent book. Yeah. Again, because John Savage, okay, it's an oral history. Mm-hmm. And John Savage, I think, really did a great editing job on this I book. think so, too. It was pretty incredible. I really, I mean, he he definitely developed the story of the band, you know, pulling all these bits and pieces of interviews from different sources. But um, the way he built the story really was very organic, and it was it flowed really well. It felt very of the moment. I felt like he really captured that feeling of what it's like to be young and starting a band and the innocence and the excitement of being in this band and not really knowing what to expect. And Yet, this one block of Manchester, which is the size of Manchester, <laughs> nothing's happening. I mean, like, the weather's terrible. Uh-huh. Industrial, one block. And it's just industry, you know, gray yeah. and buildings. yeah. And Bernard Summer, who's the guitarist for Joy Division, and yeah. then eventually the lead, or one of the lead of the New Order band, which came after Joy Division, he mentions that he, the first time he ever saw a tree, a tree was like in late childhood. I know, isn't that amazing? Yeah, I pulled a good quote from him about that. Um, he was talking about, you know, how dismal Manchester was. He says, you were always looking for beauty because it was such an ugly place. So it gave you an amazing yearning for things that were beautiful because you were in a semi-sensory deprivation situation because you were brought up in this brutal landscape. Which is interesting because Joy Division is a brutal band of sorts. I mean, there's beauty in what they do Mm -hmm. and what they sing about. But definitely, it's they're not from Southern California. <laughs> they're not from New Jersey. They're not Jersey. California with girls, <clears throat> boys. No. They're not from like you know the, the, the beaches of surfing. Spain. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> they're basically um, guys who wear long coats, <laughs> dark colors. And for us Americans, you probably couldn't understand a word they're saying. <laughs> and that's my image of Joy Division. Yeah. But you know, on a personal note. Uh huh. As a teenager, or I guess it was like almost 20, actually, at this point, I'm older. 
Yeah. And I remember that <laughs> when Joy Division came upon, I was totally fascinated with Joy Division. Yeah. I mean, I read every article possible about them. Uh-huh. And, you know, I tried to look at their photographs. I mean, a lot of, they were, you know, very photogenic. Yeah. Um, and I was just intrigued by Joy Division. Yeah, I can and, imagine. And the whole factory records look and the whole aesthetic. Yeah. And we were both working at Licorice Pizza at the yeah. same time. Uh-huh. But I used to work in Licorice Pizza in the Valley. Yeah. And my co-worker, my manager, my boss, collected factory records. Ah. He was a total, like, Joy Division was the band. Yeah. And not only was they, they the band, but he got into the whole Manchester sound. Yeah. And specifically factory records. Yeah. And factory had, like, like fact. You know, they're, yeah, they're everything was numbered. Fact yeah. one, fact two, yeah. you know, fact three. And then um, Tony Wilson, the 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 owner and yes. the uh, the head honcho of Factory yes. Records, start the making Spengali. start making like Fact Fifty One would be, I the, can't remember the number. The club, yeah. Not it was the club. Yeah. And one uh, egg the posters beater. were numbered. Yeah, and an egg yeah. beater. Yes, I saw something <clears throat> about that. Yeah. <laughs> so my friend Jim Jim mm-hmm. Maxwell, who's no longer with us, mm. unfortunately. He would, you know, collect all the original, you know, British editions yeah. of FAC, all the records. Yeah. But he could not get the building. Oh, the or egg, the egg beater. The egg beater was like, I think for him, like an insult. Like it was sort of like oh, a collector. Oh, wow. Like, why are they doing this to yeah, me? Yeah, yeah. If he could get the egg beater, he would His do it. His life would be made. And I told him, just get like, just go to, you know, the department store and just get an egg beater and just call it FAC, whatever the number yeah, is. Yeah, that would be appropriate. But it wasn't. Yeah. You know, I think Tony Wilson would appreciate that. But, yeah. But his, collector, his collector's mind would not allow him to do that. Mm. Um, and then he moved out of the valley, and I never saw him again. <laughs> <laughs> I wonder how high up he got in the factory collection. But I found serious. a website that listed every single factory number and what object or record that it applied to. It was pretty funny. Well, factory records is a great label. Oh, it was a fantastic label. I it, loved it. And a consistently great graphics. Yeah. And mostly done by uh, Peter Savelle. Yeah. If he didn't, if he didn't do all, he did the majority of the yeah, sort of, yeah. The logos and stuff. Yeah. And yeah, I was obsessed with the graphics. I mean, I didn't get into them. I got into Joy Division after uh, Ian Curtis had already passed. I got into them when I think I first heard New Order. I think Power Corruption and Lies or Blue Monday were the first thing I heard, and then I went back and discovered Joy Division. Um, but it was the graphics that totally pulled me in. Well, this is like before the internet. You know, Pardon me? This is all before the internet. Right, exactly. So you couldn't like go to YouTube and hear their music. No. You actually had to go to a, a store that carries imports, yeah, yeah. And which are more expensive than a yeah. regular American LP. Yeah. And um, so I did all that. And, you know, you, and then, you know, Rolling Stone magazine or no American media cover them. So no. you had to get like NME or mm-hmm. Melody Maker, magazines like that. Right. And they're very mysterious. Yeah. So like the, the factory work is very artful and very mysterious. And there's something doom laden about Joy Division. You know, like a goth yeah. band. I don't I wouldn't I would not call them a goth band. Yeah, they're they're frequently referred to as being mm. goth, but yeah, I never thought of them as being goth either. No, they're too in a way too normal to be goth. Yeah, I, mean, I think there's not that sort no of melodrama or something. Yeah. It's not the same thing. But Ian Curtis, the lead singer and mm. the lyricist. Has incredible presence, obviously. Yeah. I even know this by his photographs. Yeah. And there's very little footage of him dancing on stage. Yeah. But, you know, what you do see yeah, or what amazing. you read about. Even the still photos mm-hmm. that you see, some of them have that blur in them. Mm-hmm. The ones that, uh, who's that Dutch photographer, yeah. Anton Corbin, that did yes. the control movie. Yeah, he took it, some beautiful photos of them. And it's, 
And you got the impression that like James Brown's a great dancer. Yeah. Or um, Elvis Presley. Yeah. I think Elvis Presley, James Brown, and then Ian Curtis. Ian Curtis. Curtis. <laughs> in my opinion. You know, because he had his own. That's like, the continuum. He, okay. Because he, he had his own like Kirk yeah. Kirk crazy. Yeah. You know, like David Byrne has a dance and he's yeah. very skillful. Yeah. But Ian Curtis had this sort of wild, crazy, like losing control. Well, I mean, it's interesting because I think. Um, it was hard for people when he got sick and started having epileptic seizures. I think it was actually hard for people to tell whether he was having a seizure this or not. This was a huge, huge subject matter for him and the yeah. people around him. Yeah. Because they don't know when, when the attack will happen. Yeah. And a couple of times it happened um, when he was on stage. Yeah. So he started doing his crazy dance. Yeah. And he can't stop. Yeah. <laughs> and then he falls down and starts like swallowing his tongue and oh, stuff. Oh, God. It must have been horrible. Yeah. So this added to the glamour of the... Of the well, of there the was so life. much tension to go see them. Yeah. Yeah. There was an interesting quote from one of the uh, music writers who... Um, uh, Bob Dinkinson said that, uh, you know, he talked about comparing him to like Iggy Pops, you know, lacerating himself with the glass. Uh-huh. And, and he also compared him, I thought, interestingly, to the artist Marina Abramovich. And he said, you know, he, he said of him, he sacrificed something of himself for you, whether you liked it or not. Yeah. You know, and it's kind of yeah. like almost like this Christ-like, you know, complex, you know. It's, and it, I'm, I would imagine it, it was probably very uncomfortable to watch him, you know, and to a certain degree, like, well, what's going on with this guy, you know? I think what's, yeah, it's possible, but... I mean, I think that was part of the attraction. But it wasn't common knowledge that he had this. No, but I mean, time. I think people still were like, what's, mm-hmm. like, is he mentally ill? Yeah. Or, you know, there's something not quite right. Yeah, you know? and the whole band has to deal with this, mm-hmm. you know? And as it got worse and worse, he couldn't, you know, he, he, got, he married very young. Yeah. And had a child very young. Yeah. And he was not really allowed to hold his baby. Because of fear oh, of like yeah. him getting attacked yeah. all of a sudden. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, it's horrible. Um, so when he committed suicide or when he hung himself, mm-hmm. you know, as a Joy Division fan when I was twenty twenty one, yeah, they were going to come to Los Angeles and play. Yeah, at the Starwood. I know it. He did it right before the night before they were about to fly yes, to the and states. Yes, and my first reaction, remember this, it was very strange. Was oh sh- shoot, I'm not going to see him in concert. Yeah, <laughs> and of course. Two, <laughs> How totally typical that he would hang himself. Oh. That was not a surprise at all to right, me. Right, right. Because it's sort of built up in his song. I don't think it's actually there. But the Joy Division had this sort of death. Yeah, definitely angst. this doom and doom gloom. And, gloom, and yeah. Certainly, <clears throat> yeah. In a very theatrical way, but not in a way like a sort of an over-the-top, queeny way. And then more yeah. of a... Um, um, Kind of very sad. I mean, a sad band. The music is sad. Yeah, no, I think it was more in a realistic kind of, you know, the world is fucked and and I don't know what to do about that. And, you know, I, it, it wasn't it wasn't the same kind of sadness like we were talking about with the Shangri-Las. You know, that was sort of more of a melodrama and, and sort of elevating things in typical life mm. to a point beyond uh-huh. where they, to a drama beyond where they yeah. really are. But I felt like Joy Division was more like their reality was sad, and that's what they were responding to. I mean, I think like that, you know, they, the whole beginning of the book talks about how much the city influenced yeah. them. You know, the industrialization of the city and how gloomy and dark and dirty it was, and you know, the results of this industrial revolution and and how that affected them. You know, it's amazing the whole punk do it yourself mm-hmm. before punk was officially punk. Right. Like uh, like Pete Shelley of the Buzzcocks mm-hmm. was a very prominent. Um, uh, organizer, 
Mm-hmm. He brought the Sex Pistols right. to Manchester to play. Yeah. Which is, when they played in Manchester, it was like only like 30 people in the audience. Right, and they all formed a band. Yeah, they're all famous. <laughs> I know, that's <laughs> a great story. Was there. I love that story. <laughs> Johnny Marr was there. <laughs> Mags, and of course, Howard DeVoto was part of Buzzcocks right, then. Right, Every Every musician was like became yeah. a legitimary band. Yeah. Um, it was probably not true, but... That's the. Uh, I think, but for the, I think to to Mm. a large extent, it was true. Yeah. So Sex Pistols sort of kicked off this whole do it yourself. um, They got the ball rolling. Got the ball rolling. Yeah. And it's interesting that people like Tony Wilson, Mm -hmm. whose background is not music, it's a TV presenter. Yeah, this is somebody I would imagine you're totally fascinated by. I am. Yeah, this is like right up your alley. (laughs) I am. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And I'm. I actually met Tony Wilson a couple of times at Book Did you? Oh, wow. And once, you know, like, um, I think it was um, one of the British magazines would have special issues. Uh And it was like a special Manchester issue. Uh It was like after Ian Curtis passed away. Yeah. And on the front cover was a huge photograph of Morrissey. Uh-huh. And then one of the little photographs in the background was was, uh, Ian Curtis. Uh Uh-huh. When Tony Curtis saw that, he was livid with rage in front of me. He was so angry. Oh, he was looking at it at the newsstand at Brook yeah. Soup. Oh, wow. It was the first time he saw this, and he went like, uh, he went. What? So <laughs> he why was he mad? Down. Because of Morrissey getting the ch- oh, tension. Oh, okay, okay. But I mean, it was probably, a, I mean, when was this? This was probably right when the Smiths were 90s, huge. yeah, or yeah, they broke up, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Totally understandable, yeah. but not to Tony not Wilson. Not to Tony Wilson, okay. <laughs> but Tony Wilson's background was just totally a TV announcer. Yeah, yeah. No music background whatsoever. Well, he did a music show. He had he a music show. He had a pop music show, like a local concert show, which they all try to go on. Yeah, yeah. And so he was a hustler, basically. It was... He just, he saw what was going on and he said, there's something to be had here. Something, you know, can come of this. So he's, I watched uh, that movie, 24 Hour Party People recently. I'd seen it when it came out, but I rewatched it recently. A masterpiece. It's hysterical. <laughs> it's a masterpiece. It's so funny. Yeah. <laughs> I agree. And I think it's all true. You <laughs> <laughs> think so? Yeah. The part that I loved mm. is when uh, Peter Saville, the mm. graphic designer, turns everything in like the day after the gig. He has like the poster. I don't know. I, I doubt that part's true, but it was hysterical. It's true. As but, a graphic but, designer, of course we know. We know. That. We know. No graphic designer is late. They're always responsible. I'm never late. <laughs> They're always responsible. <laughs> Peter Saville is like a rarity yes. in that business. He could get away with it. So he, yeah, so he showed up like a day later, two days right. later, with the poster. poster. Right. Right. After the gig's already. Happened. <laughs> and Tony Wilson says, Peter, you're a genius. This is yeah, brilliant. Yeah, yeah, pure genius. But unfortunately, this yeah. show was two days ago when you were the poster. <laughs> and I love how the cover for uh, Blue Monday, you know, they tried to like replicate like a giant floppy disk. And, mm. and so it had like all these cutouts and it was super expensive yeah. to produce. And that was like their best selling single by far. And yet they still came out at a loss yeah, financially it, because it cost so much making, to produce Making it. the cover for that 12-inch single yeah. cost more than the recording yeah, or the record. It's hysterical. But that's the factory records. But that's why, aesthetic. yeah, it's such beautiful stuff. And I, you know, it's funny because I think, it's hard for me to remember now, it was so long ago, but I think when... We got that stuff in the store. Mm-hmm. You know, they never put the band name on. They never had any band photos. Mm-hmm. It was just artwork. Yeah. It was like, and you couldn't help but be like, well, what is this? Yeah. I need to listen to this. I don't have any idea what this is, but I know I, I need to listen to it because the cover really brought mm-hmm. you in, even though, and they weren't even like like outrageous covers or anything. No. You know, it was always something very elegant. 
mm-hmm. something very beautiful elegant. in a way. Elegant. And Peter Zabel yeah. is a very elegant, I think, designer. Yeah, yeah. Um, and the whole aesthetic of Factory Records is actually one of elegance. Yeah. It's not really like a punk rock, you know, like do yourself. Yeah, so it's they fairly are minimalist. It, yeah, the, but, I mean, what, what Tony Wilson did is got the best designer he could find, which mm-hmm. happened to be this legendary designer now. Right. And then, you know, he found, you know, by chance, you know, Martin Hannett, you know, yeah. from the Buzzcocks. Yeah. And who's like this crazy um, um, record producer right. who has his own unique sound, which is part, very much a Joy Division sound. Yeah. Well, um, he sort of made Joy Division. <laughs> he didn't make he Joy sort Division. Of, I mean, I think that's interesting that... There were so many people involved in Joy Division that mm. I feel like they were almost band members, sort of similarly to like George Martin and Brian Epstein for the Beatles. They were so critical oh. to the band, you know. It's like, I don't think Joy Division's records would have been nearly as good if it wasn't for Martin Hennett. No. And, you know, and no. not having that graphic design. Like it, all of those elements are equally important to how well known they are. And now. I think in the book, uh, Peter Hook, the bassist of yeah. Joy Division, and, and Bernard Summer, um, sort of said like, is this us? <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, they were not happy with no, the recordings because they, no. they felt like they lost the raw edge of the live mm-hmm. performances. And um, I mean, I've obviously there's lots of live performances of them that you can hear now that yeah. are released, and it, they are different. But I, I think Martin Hannett definitely improved. I mean, I think that what he did, I like what he did a lot. He can make three instruments sound like six or seven. Yeah. That's because of the echoing effect. And the- right, and he would do funny things. There's a great scene in 24-Hour Party, people, where he, he puts the drummer up on the roof, and he just tells him to keep going. <laughs> and then they show a scene where the whole band is like leaving the building, and he's still up there just drumming away. They finally told him about a week ago. <laughs> yeah, exactly. He's still there drumming away. <laughs> but Joy Division also, you know, again, like there's a photographer who just started off then in Manchester named Kevin Cunnings. Uh-huh. And he took beautiful photographs of the Smiths, mm. you know, and their, and their beginning and their prime. Oh, okay. And some Morrissey stuff. Uh-huh. But he also was sort of like the, he was like the Joy Division uh, photographer. Oh, okay. And, you know, all these photographs are never in color. They're like in black and white. Yeah, of course. You know, and usually, and usually yeah. photograph in sort of an in a, uh, industrial gothy yeah. background, like a subway entrance or right, by the right. escalators going down. Yeah. And, um, Burned out buildings. Yeah, so the, the whole look is so steady and so um, masterfully done. You know, in a way, it's, it's the same as Brian Epstein working with the Beatles and manipulating mm-hmm. their... Yeah. But the Joy Division thing seems almost more natural. Yeah. No, because they, they were very true, like everybody's true to the Manchester aesthetic. Right. Like nobody's an outsider. Right. There's no London guy going, hey, you guys, I'm going to make you right, a star. And right. you just put your suits on. And once you got a little spiky haircut and, you know... Right. Um, you know, sometimes the Clash looks like that to me. It looks like a... Manufactured. Well, there was a funny quote in the book. I can't remember if it was Bernard Sumner or Peter Hook said that when they found out how much the Clash's clothes cost, they were really pissed (laughs) off. They were like, what the fuck? (laughs) Like, that's not punk rock. (laughs) The beauty of the whole Joy Division and New Order Uh uh, and Factory Record, it is a Manchester made product. And they're from Manchester. So the whole aesthetic is from, from that city. Yeah. And that is a very unique thing. Same like with early Motown with Detroit. Yeah. I mean, you, you think of Detroit. You know, yeah, Factory of, Records is definitely Manchester. Yeah, it's not nothing, London. It's yeah, not, there's yeah. no doubt about it. Yeah. No color. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's absolutely associated with Manchester. And it's also interesting, Joy Division so far, 
there's so many books on Joy Division. Yeah. I mean, there's each member of the band wrote a memoir. Mm-hmm. Ian Curtis's wife wrote a memoir. Yeah. Her name is De- Debbie yeah. Curtis. And then Peter Hook wrote like three or four books. Yeah. Bernard Summer wrote a book. And Stephen Morris, is that the drummer? I think so, yeah. He wrote a memoir recently. Did he? Wow. And then Tony Wilson wrote his own right. quote-unquote memoir. Yeah, you've read some of them, right? I read the Tony Wilson book, oh, okay. which is, this is hysterical. Yeah, 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 yeah. He seems like quite a character. Oh, he's hysterical. I mean, the funny thing, too, about him is that, you know, it's like he seems like this hustler, but at the same time... It seems like he wasn't really trying to make money in a way. Like he I didn't mean, make money. All his deals he were... never did. He made such bad deals, and he always seemed to actually be in favor of the artists. Like apparently, mm. New Order owned all the rights to the music. Yes. He never like got any money from no. that. No, so... he, 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 it was a handshake deal, or yeah, it says like very casual. You, the band, owns everything. Yeah. We, the record label, owns nothing. Yeah. And we'll spend lots of money to make the perfect record cover. Yeah, yeah. And lose money. <laughs> yeah, yeah. He was not a very uh, savvy <laughs> businessman at all. And it seems, I mean, I get the sense that it didn't even really bother him so much. Like, no. I think he was just more in it for the actual, he enjoyed the hustle, but not. it wasn't to get money. It was just to kind of do it, you know? Even more like all of my other favorite hustlers in the music world, which tends to get power and money. Yeah. Wilson seemed to live day by day. Yeah. But he was also a very straight looking guy. I mean, he's just like, he's like, like a TV pronoun- you know, right, announcer. Right, right. So he, he wasn't like sort of, this, he's not like sort of a flamboyant manager yeah. type. Yeah. Yet his character was flamboyant yeah. in the sense that he, well, he had no business sense. Yeah. I mean, some have pretend they have business sense, but he clearly had nothing. I know. And it's interesting that like Malcolm McLaren, he also had a great admiration for um, Kitabor. Ah, okay. And so did and so did Malcolm McLaren. Yeah. The big difference between the two is, I think Tony Tony read Gitabor, and Malcolm McLaren heard about Gitabor. Uh, <laughs> yeah, Tony Wilson was definitely an intellect. I mean, he was well read, educated. Yeah. I think he was Cambridge educated. Yeah, yeah. So, so um, there was another interesting quote about uh, Wilson from Peter Saville. He said, "The unique role of Tony is as a body around which other bodies orbit." I don't like having to call him the sun, but a solar system is an analogy for what factory was. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, he really sort of was the glue to that whole scene. He was. He was like the commander-in-chief. Yeah. yeah. Uh, without him, well, I think Joy Division would exist in a certain fashion. Yeah, I don't think they'd be as well-known. No, yeah. they would not be well-known. I mean, yeah. the beauty of factory is they totally f- furnish Joy Division. You know, they sort of built the interiors. Yeah. I'm sorry, you know, like they built the interiors around the band, and that's the beauty of the thing. Also, it's interesting, and the product in the book off and on is the Nazi connection. Yeah, that's really interesting to me. You know, when I first got into them, I didn't know what Joy Division meant, I had never heard that. Which expression. Joy Division means is, is basically a brothel. Right, it was for, for, the, for, the, Nazis, for the Nazis, yeah. Which they had like Jewish women yeah. as, as the prostitutes. Yeah, it's horrible. And I didn't know that. Mm. I just thought that it was uh, uh, like an ironic name because oh. their music was so gloomy, right. you know. Uh-huh. And then when I found out what it meant, I was kind of like, I don't, I didn't know what to think of that, you know. And, and then New Order. <laughs> yeah, and then the New Order, exactly. It's like, it's, that's not a big improvement. <laughs> but the interesting thing is that um, Bernard Sumner was talking about, you know, I mean, they were all born in the mid-50s or so. Mm-hmm. So, I mean, the war was still very... Um, 
prevalent. You know, the memories of the war. I mean, all the all their parents and everything lived through the war. It was still mm-hmm. talked about, just like we still talk about nine eleven, which is yeah. almost twenty years ago. I yeah. mean, it's still very um, prevalent in our minds. And just same for them when they were growing up as children. The war was always talked about yeah. and discussed. Yeah, so, I'm not you know. sure. I, I don't know my history, but I don't know if Man- I know London was bombed out heavily. Yeah, I was wondering about that too. I don't know how and much up to Manchester and up to like affected. the 60s, there was like still bombed yeah. out areas. Yeah. And uh, Manchester, I'm not sure if it was bombed or not. Yeah, I don't know if it was how affected it was either. But I'm sure, at minimum, there were colossal deprivations mm-hmm. and lots of people's, all the, you know, I'm sure a lot of men were lost in the war, you know. I'm but sure again, people I think Manchester Ian Curtis served. and company yeah. were intrigued by the whole um, aesthetic of a German. Yeah. You know, like the sort of imaginary, well, not imaginary, but... The you know the the uh, the Aversphere architecture and the yeah. Lenny Reifenthal images and well I think a lot of people are intrigued by even people it's like that you know you're appalled and intrigued at you know it's like a car accident you and know? their haircuts you can't look away yeah. you know and their haircuts were very um, militant like like Frau yeah. Furt, you know I mean yeah. but like but like sort of like 1940s yeah. kind of you know that's the, the look they had yeah, yeah. and um, kind of neat hairstyle but you know. Yeah. Not flamboyant whatsoever. Yeah, they weren't. Yeah, they definitely weren't hippies and they weren't punks either. Yeah. They weren't like spiking their hair no, and, up or mohawks or anything like that. And what I've read about Ian Curtis, he was conservative. Oh, really? He was a Tory. Hmm. And he actually liked, um, I think he, he, he liked Thatcher. Oh, wow. That's interesting. So he, he, he was trained. I mean, he worked at a, in a hospital or he worked in, a, in the book. He worked in a, um, he took care of people like him, actually. Yeah. So... You know that he had like sort of a serious sort of day job. Yeah, at, yeah. Until he gave it up for the for right. the music, but um, you know he wanted to, he wanted to move up in the world. He wanted to, yeah. You know he wanted to be successful. Right, right. Yeah, they talked about um, how they thought he would actually have ended up as a writer, a, a book writer, right, and not a songwriter. You know, one thing that I think is super interesting as we were talking about the graphic design, I forgot to talk hmm. about it, is. You know the imagery is so iconic now. It's so, especially the unknown pleasures cover. Yeah. I see that everywhere. And mm-hmm. talking about the Nazi reference, I actually saw a while back. I saw um, somebody wearing that cover, and it had Hebrew on it. Uh-huh. And I was kind of like, "Boy, that's really pushing the irony." <laughs> <laughs> so it's amazing. Uh-huh. And just the other day, I was walking on Vermont, and I saw some. 20 year old kid wearing an unknown pleasure it would be vermont t-shirt yes of course vermont. it would be vermont yes the <laughs> hipsters yeah 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 but um it's amazing and i've seen lots of things where people have sort of done riffs on it you mm-hmm. know they've sort of stolen it and kind of changed it just a little bit but it's still yeah. clearly the unknown pleasures i, I think it's very much of a bootleg t-shirt i mean the image is yeah it's everywhere over over yeah. it's everywhere and you kind of wonder if people even know what it's from yeah. anymore it's just kind of a psychotic graphic i mentioned the before, but you know, I, I really loved Joy Division at that time. Yeah. But I can't really listen to Joy Division anymore. Yeah. Not because it's depressing. It's just like I feel like it's sort of like teenage music, young people's music. Yeah. Yeah. And I feel the same way about The Doors, mm. which is oddly enough, The Doors and Joy Division do have sort of yeah. Spiritual... They talked about how that was a, a big influence for them, and it's funny I'd never really heard that before. But in, in reading this book, it, they mentioned the doors a lot and how they were an influence. When I listen, when I first heard the Joy, Joy Division album, I definitely thought of the doors. Did you? Yeah. Uh, I mean, there's no organ never, sound, yeah, but there's something about uh, Ian Curtis's voice that's very Jim Morrison like to me. Mm. Morrison technically is probably a better singer. Yeah. You know, he has more of a range, but yeah. but um, but I thought that um, but I thought that um, you know, yeah, the presentation was very doors like. But yeah. again, 
I, I, I do have Doris albums, mm-hmm. but I very rarely listen to it because when I listen to it, it's like, well, that's when I'm 19 or 20. Yeah, it's yeah. not a nostalgic thing. You know, I can listen to some music that's like fresh to me, you know, yeah. always. But like, but Joy Division and um, Doris is always a music from the past for me. Yeah, I feel pretty much the same way. I hadn't listened to Joy Division in a long time. And while reading the book, you know, I put it on a couple of times. And I still like them quite yeah. a bit. I, th- I think they're a good band, but... Yeah, it's not something I feel particularly drawn to listen to over and over and over. No. So, the searing, light, the sun, and everything else. Try to remember this, audience. <laughs> Joy Division, The Oral History, John Savage. I think it's an excellent book. Yeah, I agree. Even if you're not a huge uh, Joy Division fan, I think it's a really well-done book. It goes into the whole Manchester scene, mm-hmm. if you like any of the other Manchester artists, because... Like Buzzcocks? Yeah, the Buzzcocks are Mm. mentioned quite a bit in the book. Uh, Drudy Column, Mm -hmm. The Fall. So any of those bands, if you're into them. And just, it's a good sort of musical history. And, and, you know, I just love the way it talks, sort of shows the development of a band. If you're you're a young musician, it's a great book to kind of see Mm -hmm. how the progress of a band comes about. It's a very smart book. I mean, it's not not a dumbed-down book. No. It's a very... Has a good history, a yeah, good city history. And he, yeah, he brought in a lot of different perspectives and sort of really did a good job of balancing yeah. it out. Yeah. Highly recommend, definitely. So what's what are we going to do for our next episode? All right. So next time we are going to be doing the new Debbie Harry autobiography. A Blondie. Face It. Yes. Face Blondie. It. So yeah, so that should be interesting. I think, you know, she was hanging out with all the cool people in New York in the 70s. And yes. So um, that will be a fun discussion. So definitely. And join us on uh, Facebook. You can follow us on Facebook. And we do have a little uh, book club on Facebook if you want to discuss any of the books or music. Mm -hmm. And you can follow us on Instagram. And we have playlists on Spotify and Apple Music for each episode. We have everything except a tote bag. We'll have to work on that. We need a tote I think bag. I need to design a tote bag for us, don't I? That'd be good. I like that. Carry your books and your records. A very expensive tote very bag. Very expensive tote bag. Cheaply made, but very expensive to buy. And, and we'll have them produced as soon as the mm. podcast is kaput. <laughs> and, and, I'll do a Peter Savile. Peter Savile. <laughs> In tribute to Peter Savile. We call it fact. 100,000 or something. <laughs> I like it. I like it. Okay. And you can find links to all of the information for everything we've discussed on our website at bookmusic.com. B-O-O-K-M-U-S-I-K.com. Thank you, audience. See you soon. Bye-bye. Bye.